And a bit of lively intro music there to kick off the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here today on 2XX. Now, uh, if I were to give a really wise piece of advice, if such a thing is possible for me, uh, I would say everything is connected. Everything is connected and sometimes the connections are very obscure. So I'm going to kick off today with a piece of audio from, well, a very distinguished gent. He was a good friend of my father. He was a nuclear physicist and he worked on the very first nuclear power reactor outside the US and it was in Harwell, Great Britain. And the connection now is very obscure, but I'll explain, all will become clear. This is Professor Robert Street, who I interviewed some time ago, I think it was 2010, for Fuzzy Logic. Okay, so this marks the interview of myself, Rod Taylor, with Professor Robert Street. Where do you see the energy challenge today? Well, I really do believe that the world is now on a track where the solution of clean energy is very important. I think that quite a lot of our problems about climate change are induced by the emission of carbon dioxide from fuels of various kinds. I think nuclear energy is not a complete solution but I do most fervently believe that it must be part of the whole solution to the energy problem. I look upon the energy problem as a multiplicity of technological techniques which are to be deployed if we're going to make any progress. And I do happen to believe if we are going to continue the kind of living that we've grown used to throughout the world. What about carbon sequestration of power plants, of coal power plants? Well, I have great problems with that because if you burn, say, one tonne of carbon, pure carbon, just for the sake of argument, what you do is to oxidize that carbon, produces carbon dioxide, and that will produce one tonne of carbon will produce nearly four tons of carbon dioxide has an infinite lifetime and if it is stored at high pressure underground in my view it represents a hazard for the future which will not go away it is there forever if it does escape catastrophically then you're going to release very large amounts of carbon dioxide gas into the atmosphere which future generations will have to deal with. The other way to move of course is this dream of fusion that there are very very large problems indeed in achieving a practical way of utilizing that kind of fusion energy. It's like trying to derive electrical energy by using a pipe to the sun and back. The problems of heat transfer where you're utilizing temperatures of many thousands of degrees mm. is a real problem. It's a problem as far as materials are concerned. You don't have too many materials that can operate at very high temperatures. 
Now, earlier you mentioned your experience with the reactor in Harwell. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that reactor worked? Does it bear any resemblance to the Fermi nuclear reactor in... Oh, yes, very much so. It's simply an arrangement of blocks of uranium, uranium compound, metals, whatever, and this is arranged to be cooled either by sodium in some cases, by gases in others, and the proximity of that pile together with very pure carbon as a moderator will enable the pile to operate and this of course was the original Fermi pile which operated for the first time producing energy at the rate of one half watt one half of one watt. half of a watt is what that first nuclear reactor produced really and and how much did you generate in Harwell? oh a few hundreds of watts, perhaps a thousand, thousands, maybe, but very, very small compared with the megawatt reactors that are, or gigawatt reactors that are available now. Did, did it actually generate any electricity? Not at all. It was purely an experimental pile. It produced um, uh, neutrons, which I say was we used for neutron diffraction experiments. It was also used for producing the early radioisotopes, very, very small production of radioisotopes for medical, for medical, purposes. medical purposes. But it was experimental. The whole thing was very much an experimental process. Were you very conscious of the safety implications back then? No. <laughs> well, there used to be um, um, safety engineers whose life we always used to think was to make it difficult for experimenters to utilize these neutron beams. They used to come round with their boron fluoride counters to see what the neutron flux was. They put the yellow tapes around areas where the neutron density was a little high and that was fine. We had to get in there so we removed the tapes and went in anyway. Still alive. <laughs> yes, and you're looking very fit, so <laughs> Thank you. apparently you didn't harm you greatly. So when, when did you become aware of the safety implications? Was it, was it theoretically known? Or? Oh, yes. Yes, it was. There are two types of radiation, the charged ones, electrons and protons, all these, um, and the neutrons and the gamma rays, which are not charged. There was a great deal of information on the bad properties of ionizing radiation from radium, for example. All the codes, the radiation safety codes, until be just before the world, the, uh, world War II, were based on the radium ionizing radiation experience. After the war, a lot of work went into discovering exactly what the radiation hazards of the other kinds of radiation were and they were very strict codes I may have been a, bit, a little bit facetious about the safety around bleep but it was nowhere near as dangerous as being near x-ray machines and in some cases Can you summarize the main thing that was learnt from bleep? 
you've got to have pretty accurate knowledge of the way in which nuclei of all kinds react to neutron bombardment and that is called the measurement of cross-sections you can measure effectively the capture of neutrons by nuclei now if you're going to design any particular process you need to know those figures accurately and GLEEP was used in the early days for measuring these cross-sections an interesting story about that one too which was that someone in the States was asking about the cross-sections for collision of neutrons with nuclei of various kinds and he suddenly realized that this was classified information because it is useful, it's an awful lot of effort required to get these numbers so he said oh it's as big as a barn door mm -hmm. and this is the reason why that measurement, the unit of measurement of a cross-section for collision is called a barn <laughs> Wow <laughs> and how do you feel about the bomb now? don't like it <laughs> um, at night I say to myself I think that there are so many of these bombs in the world that we live in very dangerous times I then say that if you're going to control this it has to be a global effort you have to have some security military I'm afraid to protect any installation and that has to, be, has to be by agreement with all nations concerned and then the mind begins to boggle doesn't it because our record of collaboration on the global scale is really rather poor so I'm not very optimistic about the solution to the bomb problem that um, it really intro song here on a fuzzy logic now why was i playing a track called toffee apple peter coombe well a theme of food and nutrition and we're going to be talking about food and nutrition myths today with our special guest uh, associate professor nanad nomovsky and uh, good morning nanad good morning everyone and uh, madeline parker maddie g'day Hey, how are you doing? Uh, Maddie, uh, first time on Fuzzy Logic. Very pleased to have you with us. Now, uh, you ask, why did Rod play an interview with a nuclear physicist on a program that is ostensibly about food? Well, the answer is that uh, Professor Robert Street, who died sadly about three years ago, he was a real gentleman and... As I said, he worked on the very first nuclear power reactor outside the US in Harwell in Great Britain. Uh, he was a contemporary of Sir Mark Oliphant, who was also a nuclear pioneer. Now, I've just been interviewing his daughter-in-law, Monica Oliphant, in Adelaide, and she is a most wonderful, wonderful lady and working in the field of renewable energy. Now, we ran an Ask Fuzzy column about three or four weeks ago on the myths of carrots 
Does eating carrot improve your vision? And this story, believe it or not, has a connection to Sir Mark Oliphant. Now, one of the things that he did was he went to the United States and he was instrumental in convincing the US to kick off the Manhattan Project because at the time, 1942 or thereabouts, the US had not yet entered the war. There were grave concerns about what the, the progress of the, uh, the Germans and uh, the threat that they were going to build the bomb. Now, the other thing that uh, Sir Mark Olfen was instrumental in was the development of radar. And there was the Battle of Britain, a terrible air wall over the British sky. And in fact, the defeat of the Germans in that war was instrumental to them blocking the subsequent land invasion. So the Germans, never, the Axis forces never arrived in Britain. Now, how do you explain, how do you explain that your radar, your new development is been instrumental in defeating the Allied or the Axis Air Forces? Carrots. Carrots, that's right, carrots. The British had an abundance of carrots. They could grow them, but there were food shortages because the, uh, the U-boat war was blocking supply from the United States. So they put out this story and they said, eat lots of carrot, it improves your night vision. And you know what? That has been a remarkably persistent myth. I can remember my dad saying to me, eat those carrots, which, by the way, I didn't like. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody did. Oh, I love carrots. They're my favourite. <laughs> I'm now a reformed carrot eater. I actually do like carrots, especially raw with uh, nuts and cheese. And so there you go. That's an example of a food myth. You, uh, so our, our guest today, Professor Nenad Nomovsky, is a food and nutrition expert. Nenad, have you come across that carrot myth? I have. And the interesting story to take on, on the story of what you have just said, uh, Rod, uh, is that <clears throat> my dad was uh, actually in uh, former Yugoslav National Army, so that he was in, in, in an Air Force. And uh, one of your very first airplanes that he worked on was uh, Spitfire. And a Spitfire is um, an airplane that uh, has been used in the Battle of Britain uh, by the legendary, legendary Spitfire. Yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a plane to save the country, mm. it was a plane to save the war. Uh, his very first airplane was, I think it was a Spitfire MK4. And uh, that was back in the 50s, and the uh, US of the National Army had them until the late 60s. Early 70s, in a sense. Now, what what country was he from? Um, he was from Yugoslavia. Yep. And uh, that was before the um, 90s war and the Balkan Wars, when our country is divided in, I believe, seven little countries. Uh, so right after an after, right after the Second World War, it was um, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, consisting of Slovenia, Croatia, Macedonia. Serbia, Montenegro, and Bosnia Herzegovina, and if I missed out on any of them, my apologies to the listeners. Um, but um, basically, the country worked as a unity until the Balkan Wars, and um, we had a lot of leftovers from uh, Royal uh, Air Force uh, because a couple of islands were used as a strategic positioning uh, to actually bomb the German troops um, and allow. Uh, a better landing on a Corsica and a better landing on, on uh, going through Italy and going through Greece. So all those planes, um, the pilots would come along and uh, the myth still continued. Um, my dad was the one that actually enforced the eating of the carrots to us and I do remember even um, when we grown up uh, a little bit more, 
uh, having a carrot in a soup was uh, kind of like who has lost more, my brother or me? If he has got a two carrots, he was a bigger loser than me if I didn't have any. So, <laughs> so that was actually from the family table talking uh, about the carrots. Yeah, it was seriously. And um, even even to today's day, uh, I pass on. I've actually said to my wife, I really don't like cooked carrots in my soup. You know, just having the <laughs> like just having a broth, and you have got a whole carrot sitting in there. Um, that was very much a well. I, I, to I me. think how, how do you prepare carrots? I mean, we're getting a little bit off the main topic here, but sure. but I, I think one of the rudest things you can do to a piece of food to to a vegetable is to boil it. Would you agree with that? Yes, it's a very bland. It's you know you come out <laughs> all the flavors literally leach out, and the only thing that you are left with is this mush um, that can't be described in any normal logical way. Um, but then if you're combining a different if you're combining a different um, pieces of uh, vegetable and you're putting them into the into the soups as as an ingredient itself, and becomes a soup. It becomes a soup. Now we should explain to our listener that you have a you're not just a food and nutrition expert but you have a history before you got into the science. Yes, so I'm a fully qualified chef. Uh, so since arrival in Australia back in 92, I have been working in a variety of different restaurants and kitchens. Um, I ran my own restaurant for a couple of years uh, and I consulted for several different um, food industry and restaurant restauranteurs on the design of the menu, training of the apprentices, looking after the general ins and outs and taking care of the restaurant. Um, and from there I moved to retirement villages and then I worked as well in the retirement villages as a cook uh, and just uh, trying to modify the foods and take it from there. There are so many interesting stories you have, Nanette. I'm, I'm, I'm at the risk of sort of jumping topic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and dear listener, it's the first time Rod has ever done this on Fuzzy Logic, so but you're on notice. I want to just go back to what you're, the story you, you touched on with your, your father and the test pilot, because that's really interesting in its own right, even though when it's not the food thing. Sure. But you were saying before we went live that he was a test pilot, right? And you said he had, was it, nine? That's correct. Nine he was crashes. A, he, was a, he was a test pilot and he had a nine crashes. His nickname in the family is a cat um, because he survived them all. Um, he was a, a what they call a pre-test pilot. So um, once the, um, once the, uh, to explain that in, 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 in a couple of sentences, once the, an airplane is developed, and you really don't know whether that airplane is going to fly or not. Back in the day, what they used to do is they used to call the people like my dad was, um, and they would stick them in a plane and said, here are the commands, here are the buttons, this is how it technically should work, and um, off you go. I'm, I'm just visualizing this, so, you know, they, they're going to point to him and they're going to say, look, here's this machine, it's going to launch you a thousand meters into the air at a velocity of 600 miles per hour, 800 kilometers per hour, whatever the speed is. No one's ever flown this before. Uh, over to you. <laughs> yes, pretty much. And one of the stories that he told me, it was one of the most uh, um, funniest plane. I cannot remember the name of the plane itself but apparently the idea was that the pilot would be lying down 
and having a control with his both arms and legs in order to maneuver the plane around. So how did all that work out? He, um, my dad actually said it was a very uncomfortable position to fly the plane in. Um, lying on his front? Or? Lying on his front. Yeah. And so it's like a human torpedo. It's pretty much like a human torpedo. And he said it was uh, exceptionally uncomfortable. Um, and that was one of his comments. And I think he stopped there. <laughs> so, wow. yeah. There was a lot of uh, developments from the air industry in those days and trying all sorts of different and he, and he things. survived he and survived. he survived them all yeah. and you called him the cat yeah we called him the cat <laughs> yeah i loved it <laughs> and how did that influence how you got into what you're doing now you do food and nutrition science which is so different from your upbringing well obviously when when i was growing up you know as every child wants to grow up uh, you kind of trying to follow your your parents leads or you're trying to follow you're trying to copy and my dad had a massive influence on my life um, and uh, actually both of my parents I shouldn't say just my dad um, both of my parents mom and dad had a massive influence particularly my dad want, uh, from just the way that he is you know he's a quite a humble guy um, but he's um, very strong and you don't confuse a kindness for a weakness with him um, and I could imagine you would need to be a very calm, unflustered sort of person to just analytically take in every new situation as it occurs. And what, one of the, the pieces of audio that really stands out in my memory is Neil Armstrong and he's piloting that little capsule around the moon and there was a gravitational anomaly so they weren't exactly in the right spot and he's cool as cool as and he's got like 14 seconds worth of burn time before he touched on the lunar surface and your dad must have had a fair, a fair <laughs> deal of the same thing he, he certainly did he yeah. certainly did he was one of those guys that and he still is now uh, he's one of those guys that you can sit down you can have a nice chat he will listen to you uh, if you have to do the job the job will be done in a day if it takes a week he will work on it until it's finished um, but it will be done very well. It will be done with a precision. He's now in his uh, mid-80s, uh, and he still kicks around. He still goes for a walk about four or five k's a day. Still awesome. does a, um, normal he, life. He sounds like a real, a real character. Good really. day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, now, speaking of your emotional state, your mental state at any given moment, so, well, we have a little bit of it here in fuzzy logic because in, this, in, in the studio it's a bit like landing the lunar module sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, we, we, we've got to remain calm in the face of it all. But one thing that I've wondered about is how food attracts your 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 mood your your state of mind so this morning and, and your physical state in general so uh, i met uh, maddie and an ad for coffee this morning and we sat outside at the the cafe there and i'm feeling cold and, and i'm my, my legs are shivering and i'm feeling really tense and I'm, I'm really trying hard to relax now we often don't notice these are sort of like sub conscious cues as to your mental state and food now if I, if I were to chow down on something really high sugar would that you know have a similar effect than that um, it's 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 really hard to describe it from the perspective of just one ingredient um, when we're talking about a food, the food is more than just the, what you get from the physiological response it's more from it's, it is also not only just the hunger and thirst satisfaction, but it's the whole idea of 
what we are going to get. Just as an example, let's let's say um, we're sitting outside and it's really cold. It's coming up um, close to the lunchtime now, uh, and it's um, a very cold environment outside. What are you going to order from the coffee shop or from the restaurant where you're sitting down? Are you going to for a salad? If you're sitting out on the sun, you most probably would. But if you're sitting in some very colder areas, um, you're going for something warm. And just by choosing a different type of uh, food from the temperature perspective itself is going to cause a different type of feeling once you receive that food. Oh, so that would be part of your mental calculation when you're looking at the menu thinking, now what do I want? That's right. And so it's physically you're cold and there's, well, there's something warm, something, and then and that will psychologically boost you as well as physiologically. Absolutely, absolutely. So if it will just provide you, you know, it's like, try to imagine you're sitting out on the snow, it's a beautiful sunny day, and one thing that you're going to order out on uh, somewhere on a snow field, it's not going to, most probably it's not going to be a salad, most probably going to go for, a, let's say, a pumpkin soup or a really thick potato soup or a nice, good, solid, hearty stew. Um, because you're trying to get that and you're having a, already that predisposition in your mind that you're going to order those kind of foods and already to start making you feel, you know, nice, warm and fuzzy. Mm. Good, a good word, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we on fuzzy so you got a punt. Endorse the use of that word. Very good. So what you're, what you're saying is that eating is very much an emotional, it's, it's a very deeply personal re response as well as just, it's not just about the chemistry of, of what you're putting into your body. Absolutely. Um, one of the things is that uh, relatively recently has came out is that um, there is a, a tendency now and there's this new movement in, in the US uh, where they're using um, a culinary therapy with some of the um, people that are suffering from anxiety and depression. And the culinary therapy goes along the ideas of um, food is something that we are gathering together. This food is something in traditionally in throughout past we have been seen as hunters and gatherers. Um, and the whole process of going out, getting the food, collecting it, bringing it back to the table, then slicing it, peeling it, chopping it. It's a social activity. It's a social activity as yeah, well. Yeah. And it's not its not a stress of um, having, oh, um, we have to go and find the best food. No, no, it's well, let's go out and find where we can find the best ingredients for this imaginary dish that we're going, not imaginary, but a real dish that we're going to cook. Then once you bring that into the kitchen, you have got a process of preparation. And then also you have got a process of cooking and then you sit down at the table and you enjoy it. So you have got all the steps. But who, who washes up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice one. But, but uh, that's it. so it's, it's a shared experience. That's right. And, and, and I, a thing that I've developed over doing fuzzy logic over the past few years is I always like to meet the guests before we go on air and we share a cup of tea. Or in your, your case, a cup a of coffee. A coffee, and I have to say, I was I was bemused when we met the first time, Leonard, because you'd done an article on or your PhD research on uh, green tea, yeah. and I felt sure you would want green tea, but you drink coffee. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Look, we we might just uh, break to a quick track, and we did promise talking about food uh, and nutrition. Uh, Facts, fallacies, facts and crap, uh, myths. We, we've got a whole, we've got a huge collection of these things. And uh, don't forget, you can tweet us if you have any of your own. And our handle, Maddie, is 
at Fuzzy Logic Sci. Okay, and uh, I'm going to play this next piece of music. It's also, by the way, from Peter Coombe, and I'll explain why I like this Peter Coombe track. Why don't we bend, 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 bend at the knees, knees, knees? Why don't we stand up tall, tall at the trees, trees, trees? Why don't we walk, 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 walk on the street, street, street? Why don't we stand, 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 stand with our feet, feet, feet? Why don't we drive, 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 drive in a car, car, car? Why don't we fly, 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 fly to a star, star, star? Listener, I've got to tell you, we're all grinning at the end of that uh, piece of music, and you know what? I play that because it's whimsical and childish, and I kind of, I kind of, re- that really appeals to me. And there's something about the music in there too that, like, he's playing on the fifths, that, that little bit of organ, that little bit of synthesizing. They're going dum di dum di dum. That's playing on the major key, and it's just something I don't know. I just really like it. And music has a lot of parallels to food. And nutrition. Oh, it does. Which is what we are talking about here today on Fuzzy Logic with our special guest, uh, Associate Professor from the University of Canberra, Dr. Denard Noimovsky, and Madeline Parker. Now, Madeline, this one is for you. We've got uh, a theme of food myths. Now, you were scribbling away, making your own list of questions to fire at Nanad. Uh, <laughs> hit us with a food. Uh, fact or crap? What what have you got? Well, I'm actually interested in Nanad's personal experiences. Have you ever had like a food fad that you've been interested in or you've taken part in and then realised later, oh, that was wrong? Uh, in a food fair? Yeah. yeah. Um, Other than the carrot one. <laughs> oh, uh, you name it. Uh, where should I start? How long we have got in here? About an hour. <laughs> Um, well, one of the things is that what we used to do is um, when I was back in uh, when I was back in Yugoslavia, and this is a really interesting story actually that uh, that created a something. I'll, I will start off and then I'll explain to you later on what's happening. Is um, when I was back in Yugoslavia, we all had to uh, do a compulsory service in the defense force, and uh, during the time when I was in, uh, we had uh, this food that has been served to us as the soldiers, uh, and it's been uh, it was a beetroot beetroot juice with a beetroot salad and we received that for a very long period of time um, I call it as in having it for a whole year uh, every every evening 
And uh, beetroot juice, uh, sorry, beetroot uh, salad was you just take the beetroot out of the can, you slice it up, and you put it on the plate. Can you qualify, is this fresh or tinned briefly? Tinned, tinned, tinned. Beetroot, yeah. So um, you basically take the beetroot, you slice it up, and you put it on a plate. And uh, beetroot soup, what we used to get, was um, the juice that the beetroot was canned in, it thickened up with some of the cornflour or arrowroots and served to you in front with a bit of a pepper. Uh, consequently, that resulted in me absolutely refusing to eat the beetroot in any way, shape or a form since I arrived to Australia. And, um, and then we came here, and in Australia everything, even a burger, contains a beetroot. Um, okay. now, Talking from that perspective, is there's a lot of a talk about a beetroot and a beetroot juice and what it can actually do or does it enhance or does it assist the athletes in the recovery. Uh, at the moment, the beetroot uh, juice and the beetroot supplements are listed on uh, Australian Institute of Sport website about uh, supplements category A, I believe, where they do have uh, shown some assistance with athletes' recovery and enhancement in athletes' performance. Now, when we talk about that, those athletes, we're talking about the elite athletes, we're talking about the uh, individuals that have got an exceptionally high uh, physical requirement demands. And uh, how is that going to translate into individuals that are uh, just uh, junior athletes or um, young athletes? It's, it's a very debatable. It's still not, uh, doesn't have a still a solid concrete evidence to say, yes, this is what, what can exhibit. From the food fairs, um, we have got a variety of different things happening. You know, it's... Um, um, a use of, uh, in the one stage it was a current trend of using the organic foods and that was uh, one of the best ways to go. Organic foods does taste nicer, nicer. Uh, and there is a, obviously a reason why we should have some of the organic foods from the consumer perspective as well as from the potential beneficial health effects. Um, but How about the nutritional value? Uh, the nutritional value. Of the organic food. Of the organic food. Listen, it, it's a very interesting topic. It's mm. a very sensitive topic as well because people get very passionate about what they grow. Mm. You can't replace from, now we talk about nutritional composition. So we don't talk about emotion involved with the growing your own vegetables and everything else that those vegetables can produce. That is on the side. From the nutritional perspective, um, some of the nutrients uh, have been found to be in a higher levels in frozen vegetables than in uh, organic because they're vegetables. preserved instantly. That's right. So yeah. because of some of the commercially grown vegetables, when they do the harvesting, they would harvest them, the vegetables would be processed, snap frozen, stored in the freezer, um, and pr frozen really, really quick. So those nutrients will be under quotation marks locked in the frozen vegetables. And I know what some of the listeners will say, no, I don't buy the frozen vegetables. I do <laughs> buy fresh veggies um, just because they, the texture is, uh, once you yeah, start cooking I with them, it I think the texture is huge. Like we laughed at my sister once because she bought us frozen beans for our stir fry yeah. and she was like, the nutritional value is actually pretty good in those and we stopped laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh no, absolutely. You know, the nutritional value will be in there, but the texture, the flavor, the sound, the, the crunchiness, the, the appearance of those vegetables is going to be a completely different tool when you go into the, when you go and buy the fresh from the market. Now, when you look from the organically grown vegetable compared to the non-organically grown vegetables, um, the answer is inconclusive. Um, you would have some of the studies are showing that organically grown vegetables are more nutrient dense. Some of them will say they were not. 
you also have to take into account who grows those vegetables, when did you pick them, what is the quality of the soil, where was your soil position, what is the altitude, what is the amount there of... There are so many, too many variables to really exactly to right. do something... Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. And then, you know, it's like the people are more concerned about, oh, but what about the pesticides and the herbicides and all these things that are used onto the commercial grown vegetables? Well. Uh, yes, there are some pesticides and herbicides used, and, and, but all that is strictly regulated um, with the farmers. And as I said in probably in one of the previous shows, we do have a very good uh, regulating body called uh, FOSANS, Food Science Australia and New Zealand, that actually monitors uh, the levels of these, um, under quotation marks, toxins. And no, not quotation marks, really, are toxins. Um, that are used in order to produce the vegetables out. So is an analogy here, or, or a similar sort of question, vegetarian diet? So is a vegetarian diet necessarily more healthy? Or vegan? Oh, that, listen, when we talk about vegetarian diets, um, we have to pay attention to what the true, real vegetarian diets are. Now, when you talk about vegetarian and vegan, vegan diets in, in extreme cases, um, and extreme cases, the reason for this is um, vegetarian diets, there's also, they're very diverse. Now, some of the nutrients you don't get only from the vegetables. Some of the nutrients you can exclusively get them from the animal products, animal food products and animal byproducts like milk, eggs. And, and things like that. One of those examples would be a vitamin B12. Now, the vitamin B12, there was a lot of talk about it. It's involved with the cognition. It's involved with the development of neuronal and cells. And protection of the nerve membranes and so on. Yeah, yeah exactly. Protection yeah. of the nerve membranes. Yeah. And my vegetarian friends are buying B12 supplements because they've heard about it too. I, I'm, I'm putting my hand up here. I'm a vego. I'm a, do we eat eggs? Yeah. I eat a lot of eggs, uh, but I take a B12 supplement. That's right. And, you know, so they're, they're kind of a... You, but before you become a vegetarian, well, I don't think that you become a vegetarian. It's just basically a choice of, uh, of a lifestyle because it's not just about the food. It's about the whole concept of how do you live. Uh, I'm not a vegetarian, uh, and I'm the first one to put a hand up to say, no, that is too much of hard work. I can't do it. Uh, so I just go on to eat everything and anything. Um, <laughs> but um, what I'm trying to say is that being a proper vegetarian is a really hard job. Mm. Um, because mm. it's not only the matter of a single nutrient that you're trying to look for. You have to take into consideration all of the other forms. Well, and, and having made this transition myself, and, and I might explain why I became a vegetarian, but uh, you go to the frozen food section and there's vegetarian patties, there's soy burgers and stuff like that. I think a lot of those things actually aren't all that healthy. Yeah, well, the other the question I have actually is about the soy things. There's lots of estrogen-mimicking compounds, or at least talk about them in foods, and foods like soy, and the effect that that can have on particularly females, but also some males. Well, that's, that, that is, again, you know, so um, what we have to look from the perspective is that everything that you find in the foods can be uh, beneficial or it can be uh, toxic. Uh, what matters is the composition and concentration. So if the two of those, if the composition of the food uh, is made up that way that you have got a greater absorption of the, those um, hormone mimicking like uh, compounds, uh, then you can have a potential problems. If you have got a high concentrations of uh, some of the compounds, again, you can have uh, some of the problems too. Let's do just an example of water. Yeah? Water is widely advertised 
great for you. You have to drink it because it helps your hydration, fills your kidney, assists in your memory. Uh, it's it, it's a great overall. It's an essential component of our diets. We should we are encouraged to eat more water. Uh, and I always use this with the students, and I said one of the major side effects of an excessive water consumption is a drowning. So, you know, how do we go from one of the perspective into that perspective? But once you use that as a joke, then you realize that some of those compounds, obviously in excessive amounts, they're going to be a potential Well, it's funny you should mention that one because we did an Ask Fuzzy recently on the eight glasses a day myth. Mm. And uh, the answer is, of course, drink when you're thirsty. And uh, there there are examples. There was a a woman in, uh, there was a a competition, uh, we for a we. That's right. Yes, that was a few years back. Yes. I was in the United... It was in the UK. US. US, that's right. It was what in was the US. this competition? The, the radio station said, the person who can drink the most water wins a wee. That's W... Ah, the game thing. The game console. Yeah. And she died. Yeah. She died. She died. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she had to... I think... I believe she drank something like a six litres or eight litres of water. Oh, that's tragic. She drowned. Yeah. No, well, what happened, it affected the the sodium salt balance in her blood. Mm. That's right. So it affected her um, sodium potassium levels. So her electrolyte levels in her blood were um, basically diluted down uh, and uh, that consequently caused um, the expansion, I believe, so please don't quote me on that, but I believe the the expansion of, uh, um, it was a massive pressure was, placed onto her brain yeah. uh, that yeah. caused, uh, she went to lie down if I remember the story right and then she died from an aneurysm or something, something like that, something yes, like be- that. because there's, there's a balance of the electrolytes inside the cell body and inside the blood and uh, the the blood works very hard to maintain a constant level so you could drink lots of water or you could, you could uh, dehydrate quite a lot but your body will do its best to maintain that but if you if you push it hard enough, it'll 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 get out. It'll get out, absolutely. And uh, actually, on on another one, which I think was another Ask Fuzzy while back, was um, really pure water, like ultra pure water that oh they God. used to make silicon chips, and it tastes terrible. Apparently. It is. It is. It's it's um what we did is, uh, and this was um I remember uh, actually I remember quite there was a at one period of uh, back in. T- 2000, uh, started for the year 2000, there was this um, massive thing that uh, we should be drinking the ultra-pure water. Uh, and the ultra-pure water was, uh, well, even a, even a purer water than uh, distilled water. Uh, so what, what uh, people were getting out of the way were buying a deionized water, which is done by a reverse osmosis. And we use this in a laboratory setting uh, for a particular reason because we can control it. So we can control what kind of a water we do in order to dissolve the chemicals or uh, if there's any impurities, etc. Just quickly, have you, is you've tasted this water? I is have tasted this water. What, what was it like? It's, it's a horrible. It's, yeah. um, it literally it tastes like the water has got, it, it's a very hard to describe the taste of the water because it's supposed to be bland, it's supposed to be just the fluid, but this one was more sort of on the bitter side. Bitter? Like alkaline bitter. Really? Yeah. And I know that there is an alkaline water. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of talks about the alkaline water, which is an absolute amount of rubbish, in my personal opinion. Um, but, um, you know, from, from this perspective, why is it really dangerous to drink this type of water is that um, you will literally leach out the nutrients out of your system if you're having a high consumption of this. So it doesn't taste good, and it's not good for you. That's a pretty bad <laughs> pitch for ultra-pure water. Yeah. 
did the fad stick around for? Uh, it sticks around for about a few years. Yeah. It sticks around for it sticks around till about uh, 2010, I would say, or there, the yeah. the you know 2008, 2007, thereabout. Wow, we we have barely touched the surface. <laughs> oh my gosh, none of the things on my page. Uh, well, I've got a whole long <laughs> list of them on on my sheet of paper in front of me, and uh, we we're not even getting close to touching all of the the myths and and. But it's fascinating conversation here with you, uh, Associate Professor Nana Namowski from the University of Canberra, and uh, great to have you on the show too, Madeline. Madeline, do you have any other myths that you wanted to uh, throw out? Well, you were talking this morning about uh, coffee and green tea, because we were having a cup of coffee and Rod was having a cup of green tea, and I've heard a bit of stuff about the stuff in green tea, and then I was fascinated to hear that you're actually researching the stuff in green tea. So I'd heard that the caffeine in green tea was maybe buffered by theanine, but I don't know if that's actual how it works. What okay. are you doing? Well, basically what we are doing is we've got um, a part of my research is to actually develop the functional foods. Now, the functional foods is, um, again, taking a step back, so we kind of have got a bit of a story there. Um, the functional foods are the food products that uh, can, in, can enhance the potential health beneficial effects. Uh, but in those foods, the, the functional ingredient has not been found. So an example of functional food would be uh, cholesterol-lowering margarine. So margarine says per se, um, it, they're well advertised, uh, they're potentially better than a butter, they have got all the beneficial health effects, but in order to be a functional, you have to put something into it in order to reduce the cholesterol level. So what they do is they put the phytosterols. Using that analogy, what we are trying to develop is we are trying to develop um, a functional foods that have got a different, uh, and I'll use a big word here, it's called a psychocardiological response. So it's means a psychological response and also a cardiovascular response as well. Um, one of those ingredients that we are using has been found in a green tea. Uh, it's called uh, theanine, and it's an amino acid, uh, non-proteinous amino acid, uh, which means it's not one of the uh, 20 essential and non-essential amino acids. Um, and it's the, the, the effect of that amino acid is to actually cause a state of alertness but relaxed uh, feeling. So you're feeling alert, you, you can, um, you're well aware of your environment, what is happening, and um, you also have got um, relaxed, uh, you're not agitated and uh, jitty, like if you would have a couple of shots of a coffee. Um, very complex pathways are involved in order to, uh, from the relaxation, is a vasodilation and, uh, you know, increase the blood flow and uh, all the physiological responses from there. Um, when you're con consuming that, when you're consuming a good, solid, good, high-quality green tea, um, this amino acid also causes that umami taste. Uh, you know the yeah. um, the savory. It's, it's one, one of the six. That's right. One of the one six of the flavors. One of the sweet, sweet, bitter, sour, salty, and sweet, bitter, sour, salty, and uh, umami. Uh, and with umami, apparently, the umami taste um, uh, in some of the literature in the tradition in the traditional Asian uh, writings is that um, Caucasians can't taste it, uh, but if you have got a pure compound, you certainly can. So is that learned or genetic, do you know? Um, it's more sort of a belief that it can't be tested because we have not been brought up 
uh, with that type of a flavor. So you you get attuned to certain things, right? That's right. Mm. Look, I I think we might break to a track, and here's from a gent, um, and it has a green it has a green theme. You, you'll see why. It's a bit more Peter Coombe here on Fuzzy Logic. <laughs> and another one which I, I like because it's kind of climbing the beanstalk. I feel rather sorry for the poor John. What did he do? And this bloke appeared, climbed up the beanstalk, and he stole his chicken, he stole his harp, and then when, the, when he climbed down to get his stuff back, the guy chopped out the, the, the beanstalk and he crashed and was killed. That's a bit mean. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether Jack picked any beans on the way up uh, the, the beanstalk because he could have had a good feed there. We like uh, fresh green vegetables. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we do? You see, I, I can, that's called a segue of a sort, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I've had lots of practice doing, doing those. And we are talking uh, food and nutrition with our guest today, Associate Professor Nanad Normovsky. Whose specialty is food and nutrition, and Madeline Parker. Now, Madeline, we were discussing before the song. Yes, so you brought up margarine and cholesterol-lowering properties and things, and I've heard a lot of debate about butter versus margarine and how we were really anti-fats, and then all of a sudden we're like, actually, margarine is the bad thing, and butter's better. And I'm interested in your thoughts on that okay well one of the funniest things is about the development of the margarine so the margarine has actually originally been developed by um, napoleon soldiers well napoleon uh send out a request to develop a margarine or a butter-like substitute for his soldiers when they were um going towards the russia in order to conquer the rest of the europe because obviously the french soldiers at that time really enjoyed the butter and really liked the spread of it so um this the food supplies were short uh, and the first prototype of the but of the margarine itself got out released then since then the margarine has taken all sorts of different various shapes and forms being involved in use of um, you know the the polar expeditions uh, as uh, one of the uh, carrier for uh, different uh, energy levels or and then the butter has been used as well and now it came up to the stage where in the early 90s, the, um, there was this an idea of putting the phytosterols, which are um, sterols, which are um, compounds found in a plant uh, that can lower the cholesterol uh, once ingested. Uh, and those compounds are required in relatively high doses in order to show that beneficial effect. So what the, some of the researchers have done, they developed um, they used the margarine and the first first margarines that came out were absolutely horrid <laughs> in flavor the look um, absolutely horrid they tasted nothing like the margarines that they are out there on the market now uh, and they have shown to to have the beneficial health effects uh, they have lowered the cholesterol in some cases up to uh, 20 30 percent uh, from several studies have run and they became you know the quotation marks the term of a superfood that I <laughs> so passionately love <laughs> Um, then they um, came out, once they came out onto the market, um, there was a lot of uh, problems with the dairy industry. And, um, you know, the dairy industry it came up to that stage that uh, there were massive protests, uh, several letters to the government from the dairy farmers and dairy mm -hmm. producers not wanting to have the margarines in the same aisle as uh, butter and the dairy products because they are not dairy products, they are not butters. Uh, and they should be stored separately. Once all that has been gone through the marketing perspective, 
Um, the margarines and the butters are now living happily together forever after, I think, in a And there are some that are blends as well, aren't they? That's right, there's yeah. some that are blends. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, well, just, just the, uh, the natural versus artificial thing. So butter is seen as being, you know, straight from the, you know, the cow, the, the beautiful, idyllic, bucolic landscape, the long green grass, the cow contentedly grazing. And then, then this manufactured factory thing, you know, plastics, uh, the highly processed, yeah, artificial yeah. margarine. So, just just briefly, can you describe? I mean, there's you said already there's a big variety of margarine, but how is it made roughly? Um, well, the margarines are traditionally made from using some of the um, some of the, the the plant oils or the plant extracts. So that would be probably the best way to describe it. And then uh, the oils become hydrogenated, so they become pressed, so they can uh, be into that. Um, a solid form uh, when they are at, uh, at the cooler temperatures. Uh, that is why quite often we see the olive oil spreads now coming out onto the market um, and they are produced from olive oil. Uh, we also see uh, canola spreads, so the plant oils, um, they uh, go through the process of um, uh, what is called the process of preparation or the process of um, manipulation of the structures of the oils themselves uh, and they, they can become harder at room temperatures in, in comparison so to the original source. So they do something source. to make it uh, thick because obviously That's oil right. is oil. The oil is oil so it's at the liquid, at the room temperature is a liquid. Yeah. Uh, with the margarines at the room temperature it becomes as a as a hard solid yeah, component yeah. and that's why we, it's very beneficial to use it in the spreads. But now, do you think it's less healthy than butter or do you think that's a debate that we can't really say listen, for sure? That is a, yeah, that is a debate that we can't really yeah. say for sure. Like a um, lot of things. It's, it's, what, if you consume the same quantities, uh, I would more in tendency to say that the margarines are better for you. Uh, if you consume the same quantities of a butter versus margarine. Do you really have to consume the same quantities of a margarine in comparison to the butter? Um, no. Um, quite often you can have a really good quality, nice meals that were cooked or prepared with the butter in comparison to the margarines because in the butter you have got a lot of the different types of um, acids that provide you with a flavor. So um, every component within the butter itself, uh, it plays a part of a flavor that you're developing when you're cooking. Yes, the butter has a very distinctive flavor, doesn't it? And it's something really, there's something really appealing about the taste of butter, like yeah. cream, isn't That's it? right, yeah. yeah. And you know, it's like, I remember quite clearly, I remember there was a photograph that came out onto the social media where they said a piece of uh, butter lying down next to the ant's nest and a piece of a margarine lying down next to the ant's nest and all of the ants were jumped onto the butter and mm. they started eating it. Uh, well, there was not, not many ants onto the margarine, but yeah, I, I guess I that's just really we're running over time. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Station. Too much to talk about. Oh, uh, yeah, this, is, uh, this is fascinating. Look, uh, we've got to wind it up, and uh, I'm just going to quickly, now that I've broken the law, I'm going to go ahead and finish what I was going to say, and that is uh, Ask Fuzzy Columns. So today we've got one about Alzheimer's and uh, food supplements, which we haven't had time to talk about. <laughs> Next week, we've, uh, you've helped us organise one through one of your colleagues. Can you exercise too much? Is it unhealthy to exercise too much? That's my excuse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I, I exercise by getting up from the couch and running to the fridge and then back again. Uh, we've got one about medical statistics. A reader has sent me a question. What does it mean when, it's, when they say 97%? Uh, we could have had a long conversation about that. Someone has asked about face shapes and what happens when you look at the sun. Is it safe during an eclipse? 
We've got to wind it up. It's been such a good uh, time talking to you, Madeline Parker. Thank you very much. <laughs> All good. It's been we'll great to be here. Thank you. We'll get you back on the radio. And Nanad Namoski, and uh, we look forward to getting you back again on Fuzzy Logic. Thanks very much for having me. Good on you. Catch you later. <laughs>